Well, good morning, church. It's good to see you all this morning. Our scripture text this morning is found in the book of Hebrews. We're in Hebrews chapter 2, looking at verses 14 through 18. If you're able, will you please rise as it is read this morning out of reverence to God's holy and inspired word. This is the word of the Lord. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one that has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those through who, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For it is surely not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest and service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Because he, for, because he himself was te- had suffered and was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that as we come to your word together this morning, that your Holy Spirit would be enlightening us, be opening our hearts, drawing us closer to yourself. Be with he who speaks. His sins are many, and he is dependent upon you. Lord, we pray that you be blessing all of us this morning in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. Please be seated. So this past Friday was Friday the 13th. If you made it through, congratulations. And it's also, of course, it is mid-October. So between those two things, we are really in the midst of prime uh, spooky season, right? You can't go into a retail store or a grocery store or Lowe's or Target or anywhere without seeing all of the Halloween decorations. Actually, right now, uh, the Halloween decorations are in and amongst the Thanksgiving and then the Christmas, and it just kind of gets overwhelmed all the way around. But if you are into scary movies or if you're into haunted houses or anything like that, now is your time right? It is abundant right now. Personally, I'm, I'm not a fan of haunted houses. I really don't like horror movies. Um, I do, I think, I, I, have, I have an affinity for the more kind of Alfred Hitchcock style of movies. I kind of prefer the, the, the suspense, the jump scare, the, the old M. Night Shyamalan, the even things like uh, the older original Stranger Things. But the question I want to ask this morning, why is there such a fascination with entertainment that seeks to scare us? Why is there such this fascination with this? It really seems counterintuitive, right? It seems counterintuitive to think that the selling point of a movie or a show or a book or an experience would be, uh, you're going to be afraid. Give us money and we'll scare you. Right? That doesn't make a lot of sense to me, but it really, there, there's something going on there, right? Now, again, maybe you're not into haunted houses. Maybe you're not into the horror genre at all. But perhaps you've been in a situation in your life where you were afraid. Perhaps you've been in a situation in your life where, you know, all logic, all rational, reasonable thinking would say there's nothing to be afraid of, and yet still you were afraid. This happens... To me, uh, there's one profound uh, uh, example of this is when Linda and I were first married, we were living uh, north of Nashville in Tennessee, and Linda is the, the, uh, just this uh, amazing decorator and always has this eye for, 
for, for style and for welcoming things, especially in the home. And she had this great idea that, you know, we need some fall decor. It was about this time of year. And I was like, okay. And she's like, you know, it would look nice if we get like a bundle of dried corn stalks together. And we can put them on the front porch and they'll look nice. And she's right. So, okay. So we were driving around and we were coming home one evening. It was late at night. And we were driving past a cornfield. And as we're driving past this cornfield, Linda's like, oh, we should stop and get some corn stalks. I was like, I don't think we're allowed to just take corn stalks from a farmer. She goes, no, it's fine. I was like, okay, it's fine. So if there's a farmer in north of Nashville that's missing corn stalks from 2004, let me know. We'll, we'll make it right. Um, but late at night, we pull over. We're the only people around. There, there's no light except for the moon itself. And y'all, I'm trying to cut down corn stalks with a pocket knife. And I am genuinely terrified because there really is. There's a reason that cornfields are so prominent in scary movies because they are something really terrifying about a cornfield at night, especially late in the fall after they're all dried out. I would submit, y'all, that deep down, I would submit that deep down people know that there really is something to be afraid of. Not just in the cornfield, but in, in this world, in life in general. Perhaps it's beyond the physical or the tangible. Perhaps it's something that we can't identify, that we can't put language on. But we know something is there. There is something to fear. And we can't even label it or identify it clearly. And then it makes it all the scarier. So we go to the macabre, we go to scary movies, we go to haunted houses, we, we name it the monster under the bed, we call it the ghost in the attic. Mike Cosper, in a book called Stories We Tell, puts it this way. He says, if we believe the Bible to be true, we must admit that there is more to this world than we perceive. Powers and persons that we can't see or comprehend are at work, but somehow we intuit them. That intuition works itself out in our imaginations and we tell stories that try to explain what we feel and comfort us from the fear and the shadows. Scary stories show us that there are indeed dark forces at work in the world and they tend to coincide with darkness at work within each of us. The devil indeed prowls like a roaring lion seeking opportunity to work in concert with the evil in men's hearts. We tell these stories because they resonate with our sense that there is something out there. The monster under the bed is real. The vampire does wait for us in the closet. A sinister force awaits in the shadows, licking his chops and waiting to devour us like a roaring lion. You know, in our text this morning, the author of Hebrews is bringing out the most profound fear that we can have. And really, this fear is the foundation for all other fears that we ultimately experience. It is this fear of death. This raises the, the question, why? Why should we fear death? John Piper put it this way. He said, you know what, if, if the atheist is right, if there truly is no God, if there's nothing beyond the material, if there's nothing beyond the physical, if you die, you close your eyes, that's it, nothing. Then there's really nothing to be afraid of in that death. That might be sad. It might be sad to be the ending of everything you've ever known. It's kind of the ultimate experience of the end of a vacation, the end of the, the summer holiday. 
but it's not scary. It's not terrifying. However, if there is a God, if we are truly created in the image of God, as the Bible teaches, and as Adam brought out in our text last week, if God truly is just and holy and worthy of our love and worthy of our worship and worthy of our obedience, and if he is justly angry at our sin, at our rebellion against him, and if we are destined to give an account to this holy, righteous, infinite God, then you know what? Death truly is terrifying. Death is terrifying if we have to give an account to this God and we are not right with him. If we have to give a reckoning before God, it's as Blair was talking about before, it is like the kid waiting for their father to get home. Just wait till your dad gets home. If you ever heard that growing up, you know what kind of fear that had. This is the ultimate experience of that. Indeed, written on every heart, the Bible says, is the law of God testifying to our conscience that we are, in fact, to give an account to God. Romans puts it this way, Romans 2.15. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Y'all, what scripture is saying here is that the deepest parts of our hearts, the deepest parts of our conscience, we know even if we can't express it or fully understand it or put the language on it, we know that there is a God and that we are not right with him and that there is a reckoning to come. And therefore, death is scary. Death is something to fear. So this is back to our passage in Hebrews. As the author of Hebrews continues to unfold and unpack how Jesus is better. We now come to this section where the author is laying out how Jesus truly is the answer to our biggest problem. And this is really, this is humanity's biggest problem. This is humanity's universal problem. It is the problem of the reality of death. The problem of the reality of death. In the 1991 movie, What About Bob? Richard Dreyfuss plays this psychiatrist. He's kind of well-known. And he has this son. He's an 11-year-old boy named Sigmund. And Siggy uh, uh, has this paralyzing fear of death. And there's a line that he's talking to Bill Murray's character, Bob. And Bob has all of these fears. But Siggy only has one fear. And he's trying to lay it out for him. He says, are you afraid of death? Me too. And there's no way out of it. You are going to die. I'm going to die. It's going to happen. And who cares if it's tomorrow or 80 years? Do you know how fast times goes? I was six like yesterday. I'm going to die. You're going to die. What else is there to be afraid of? And y'all, in the movie, Sigmund is treated as the one with the problem. He's the kid with the issue. But y'all, I would submit to you, he's the only one thinking right about it. He's the only one who's actually thinking properly about this truth. He's the only one that sees things clearly. 
In the second Pirates of the Caribbean movie, there's a, the, the antagonist named Davy Jones asks Jack Sparrow this question. He says, do you fear death? Do you fear that dark abyss? All your deeds laid bare, all your sins punished. This is a theme, an idea that we see in popular culture. We kind of get this idea of reckoning, of judgment to come. Most people simply do not let themselves think about what is absolutely inevitable. That is their own death. They are driven, consciously or unconsciously, to shut their eyes, close their ears, turn off their minds to every thought that, that the, the truth that you are going to die and have to give an account to God. And y'all, this truly is, this is slavery. This is slavery to this fear of death. We're so afraid of it that we, we can't face it in any real, meaningful way. Y'all, I would submit this is why, actually, in our culture, we have abandoned the idea of a funeral. We don't have funerals anymore, right? We have celebration of life services. It's part of the reason we, we no longer have cemeteries around. We tend to tuck our cemeteries away. We hide them way out of the way where we don't have to look at them and don't have to see them. But there was a time not too long ago that almost every single church had its own cemetery attached to it. And y'all, when you came to worship on Sunday morning, you would pass by the church cemetery and you would be reminded one day, unless Jesus comes back first, I will be out there with them. Y'all, that puts a whole new perspective on worship. That puts a whole new perspective on what we are doing as God's people when you walk by a cemetery and go, yep, one day soon I'm going to be out there. What the Bible is saying is that death is a real problem. It's not something to ignore or to minimize. It's not something to try and pull out the Lion King circle of life thing. Death is just a part of life. It's a real problem. But the miracle, the gospel truth is that it doesn't leave it there, though. The Bible doesn't come to you and say, hey, you're going to die. It's an issue. All right, see you later. It doesn't leave us there. Our text this morning is this great truth that the Bible answers the problem of death. And it answers the problem of death with the most Sunday school answer that there is. What is the answer to the problem of death? It's Jesus. Here in Hebrews 2, we get not only that Jesus is this answer. We see that how Jesus is this answer. We, we see not only that, Je, not the, the fact that Jesus is the answer to this problem of the fear of death, of the slavery to that fear, we see how it is. This morning we see that Jesus is our older brother. He is our high priest. He is the hero that defeats death. And y'all, he must be all of these things to make propitiation for our sins, to save us. And the most profound thing we see is that Jesus defeats death by his death. We see that Jesus is our brother, Jesus is our priest, and Jesus is our hero. So the first point we see is that Jesus, our brother, when the author of Hebrews is making clear here in verse 14, since therefore the children share in the flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. It's the same truth that Paul writes about in Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 8. 
We see Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Y'all, this is the same profound truth that is proclaimed in the nativity narratives of Matthew 1 and Luke 2, that God incarnate was born. Was born. It's the same truth proclaimed in the historical creeds that we see in the Apostles' Creed, that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. The truth is that Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, was truly born and truly is fully human. Now, becoming fully human, he does not become less God. It's not a mix. It's not like a bottle of shampoo and conditioner in one where it's just half and half or whatever. He is fully God and fully man. The person of Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, is Fully God has a fully divine nature, and his fully man has a fully human nature. Big fancy theological term. I taught it to the youth on Sunday. I mean, on Wednesday night. I'm teaching it to y'all now. If you don't know it already, this is called the hypostatic union. Now, whether or not you remember that phrase doesn't really matter. But this truth that Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man is so critical. We see that Christ became human. The Son of God that we saw back in Hebrews 1, verse 2. He didn't simply come into being when he was conceived by the Holy Spirit. He is eternal. He has always been from eternity the very image of God, as it says in Hebrews 1, 3, and was himself God, Hebrews 1, 8. But since the people, the children whom God loved and sought to save were in fact human, the Redeemer, the Messiah, Emmanuel, God with us, comes and takes on human nature. Jesus, actual God, actual man. This is an incredible, profound mystery. But it tells us something really profound about who God is and what he is doing in this redemption. There's been so many uh, what we call Christological heresies throughout the church history. All right, And if you're like me, you really like history, you're like, oh, this is neat, let's talk about this. And if you don't, that's fine. But just know that there have been many uh, uh, heresies that say, uh, well, Jesus really is this, but really isn't that. Docetism says that Jesus was really God, but he wasn't really a human. He just looked like a human. He wasn't really a human. Arianism is the opposite. He's like, yeah, he really was a full-on human, but he really wasn't God. He was like the best human, the best creation, but he's not really God. There's other uh, uh, heresies like Apollinarianism, which says that Jesus was fully God, but he was only like partly human. All right? And then adoptionism, like Jesus was always fully human, but only became God later uh, when, when God sort of adopted him as, as his son. Now go through all that, and again, not to try and get you to have to remember all these terms or these, these her heretical things, but just to understand that really understanding what the Bible clearly teaches about who Jesus is and what the church through its history has been so vigilant against such heresies is because Jesus' incarnation God taking on flesh, divine becoming human, is so critical to our very salvation. Because the truth of this is critical to the very purpose and mission of Jesus. 
as Adam was talking about over these past couple weeks, to be this mediator between God and man. Y'all, because of the fall, because of sin, our relationship with God, with our creator, has been severely damaged, has been broken. So how is it that a holy God and a sinful people can have that relationship restored? We need a mediator. There has to be a means of bridging that immense gap between sinful man and holy God. This is all God's idea. This is God's work. God is the one doing this. But this mediator can't just be anybody. We need a mediator who can truly represent both sides. So we need a mediator who is truly God. And no one can be truly God, of course, except for God himself. No one can represent God except for truly God himself. The mediator must be God. More than a prophet, more than someone who says this is what God says, more than an emissary or an agent or an ambassador, but one who truly is God. But y'all, on the other side, we also need a mediator who can truly represent us, humans, broken, sinful humans. We need a mediator who can empathize with us, who shares with us. At the very heart of Christian theology is the God who shows up in the fullness of humanity and at the same time is the fullness of God. This is the one true mediator, Jesus, who fully knows both sides. And because this is who Jesus is as our older brother, that means Jesus truly can be our priest. Because Jesus is fully human now, he can be our priest, the one who brings the people to God. By being human, Jesus takes on the role of high priest and representing the people before God. The book of Leviticus, I know this is probably your favorite devotional book, right, of all the Bible. You read it all the time, I'm sure. (laughs) It can be a slog, but just understand that um, I love this work from the Bible Project where they kind of lay out and kind of outline. I know this is too small to see, but it, it makes the point that As complicated and as weird as Leviticus might seem, it really is just one big spiral. It's taking you on a journey through the temple to the very center of the temple. And in the middle of the book, in Leviticus 16 and 17, it takes you to the center of the temple, and it takes you to the Day of Atonement. Once a year, when the high priest would enter the centermost room of the temple, the Holy of Holies, this curtained-off section where the Ark of the Covenant was, where God's presence was most fully manifest and known. This one little room that only the high priest could enter, and only on the Day of Atonement once a year, and only after he has put on the right special clothes, and done the right ceremonial washing, and has made and offered a sacrifice for himself and his own sins first, and then he goes and offers another sacrifice on behalf of the people, and then has the scapegoat and pronounces the sins of the people on the scapegoat and is cast out in the wilderness. And then he takes the blood of the sacrificial lamb and takes that blood into the Holy of Holies with him and sprinkles it on the Ark of the Covenant. This redemptive act showing of the the, the means by which God would redeem his people. Y'all, we get the idea of sacrifice, even if we don't really think about it. I think we really do get the idea of sacrifice. We get this idea, you know what, we are not right, and we need a mediator. 
We need a priest. Again, even if we don't use that language, we understand this idea that we aren't right. We need someone to go before us. We need someone to bring us in, someone to bridge that gap. Let me give you a couple of examples. You can think of a politician. I know you don't like to do that, but, you know, think of it. We pray for our politicians. I'm glad we do. But a politician is very careful to only let you see what they want you to see. They find ways to present themselves in such a way that will be acceptable to you, the voting public. They bring an offering, and that offering is their stump speeches or their campaign plan or their promises, their catchy sayings that will get you to vote for them. Or think on, uh, on some college campuses, there is a Greek system that is fraternities and sororities. And at some colleges, that Greek system is a really big, important deal. At some, not so much. But regardless, uh, if, if you are a new student at a college, you don't just walk up to the door of a fraternity or sorority, knock on the door and say, hi, I'd like to join your club. Let me in, please. They have a whole system called Rush. And they have to, you have to have someone who actually approves of you. And somebody who's already on the inside has to come out and bring you in. And bring you before the rest of them and say, I vouch for this person. They belong with us. They must be, you must be invited in and found acceptable. Y'all, we do this all the time, though. We are looking to find capital for acceptability. Sometimes that's a very formal process. Sometimes it's a much more informal process. When I was in fifth grade, I might have told you this story before. Um, when I was in fifth grade, I really wanted a pair of Reebok pump basketball shoes. I didn't play basketball. I wasn't, you know, I've never been athletic. But I wanted these Reebok pump basketball shoes. Now, my parents were, in their great wisdom, said, we are not spending $100 in 1989 dollars on basketball shoes. That's ridiculous. Here, get these. They're just like the pumps, but they're only $35. So I did. And I wore them to school. I was ridiculed for my knockoff, Payless brand pumps. And so I systematically destroyed those shoes as fast as I possibly could, took them back to my parents and said, see, they're garbage, they wore out. And that's because I made them do that. Um, Got my own money together and bought me a pair of Reebok pumps and went back to my same fifth grade class and guess what happened? I was accepted. It was that easy. (laughs) Just have to have the right shoes. Now, y'all think, that's ridiculous, but how often do we buy cars or buy houses or go on vacations for the same reason? If you're taking the FPU class, you learn all about that kind of stuff, that we buy things we don't want to impress people we don't like. But we get this context for sacrifice, for offering, that we have no standing in and of ourselves to come before God. We have, perhaps, for lack of a better term, an over-familiarity with the gospel. If you've been in the church for a long time, you maybe know the gospel well, and that's a good thing. I'm glad you do. But perhaps you know the gospel so well that you kind of lose its wonder. That's why going to what Hebrews is talking about, this idea of priests and sacrifice, understanding the Old Testament sacrificial system can be so beneficial. You know, we have no less need of a sacrifice than the people in Israel in the book of Leviticus. It's simply that our sacrifice has already been 
offered once and for all, accepted by God. Y'all, Hebrews really is, it's the only book in the Bible that it explicitly lays out this profound truth that Jesus is our priest. We get in other places, we see the, the kingliness of Jesus. We see the prophetic nature of Jesus. We see that Jesus is our redeemer, is our atonement. But now, actually in four places in the book of Hebrews, this is the first of four, where we see explicitly Jesus is our priest. He is the one that brings the people to God. Jesus came not only to be the high priest who offered the sacrifice, but Jesus came to be that sacrifice itself. The ultimate and true sacrifice. Not a sacrifice of a goat that had to be offered over and over and over again, but the one true sacrifice that through death he ends the fear of death and destroys the one that has the power of death. We're going to talk about it in just a moment. Y'all, in dying, Christ rendered powerless the one that has the power of death. Hebrews 2 calls the devil. As it says in our passage, that through death he might render powerless whom that has the power of death. The devil. Y'all, in dying, Christ defeated. In this profound way, Christ defeated the power of the devil, and took away his ability to torment and to destroy and to enslave via death. Through his death, Jesus defeated death. And this was the knockout blow to Satan. And this makes Jesus our hero. And y'all, just like we get the idea of sacrifice, I would submit that we intuitively, we get the idea of hero. We get the idea that one is coming to fight a fight that we cannot fight. We get the idea that we need someone to come win the battle that we can't win. That's why for so long, comic book movies have been so popular. It's why high fantasy stories are so popular. It's why fairy tales are so popular. Y'all, this is why professional wrestling is popular. We get this idea. We identify with the truth that there is an evil out there. Some evil force, some evil being that is so great, so powerful, so strong that we cannot beat them. We cannot even think about facing them. Whether that be Thanos or Zod or Sauron or Johnny Ringo or Ric Flair, we get the idea that we can't beat them. We need a hero. Y'all, more than strong and fast and fresh from the fight, we need more than Luke Skywalker or James Bond or Hulk Hogan. We need... A hero who can defeat an even greater enemy. Our enemy is not some supervillain or bad guy or heel. Our enemy is death. It is the fear of death. And that comes from sin. And the devil uses that as his weapon against us. Dr. Michael Kruger, who's written the, the Hebrews for You book that we, are, um, we have out on our, on our uh, resource station, which actually we're out of. I got more coming in. If you're looking for one, we have more coming hopefully this week. I took his Gospels class at Reform Seminary, and he makes this significant point about the temptation of Jesus that we see in Matthew 4, Mark 1, and Luke 4. He makes this great point that up to that point, Satan had been the reigning, defending, undisputed heavyweight champion of the world, so to speak. Satan was batting a thousand. Every single person had fallen to sin. 
every single person that had lived up to that point had sinned, had rebelled against God up until this point, up until Jesus. See, God clearly could have simply reached down and squashed Satan or flicked him away like an ant, but that doesn't solve the problem still of, the, of death and the root cause of death, that is, sin. Y'all, this is the profound importance of the incarnation, that Jesus, as our hero, coming as one of us to die in our place, again, to not only be the priest offering the sacrifice, but to be the very perfect sacrifice itself. His death destroys Satan, who has the power of death. As it says in, in our text, that through death he might destroy the one that has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Jesus' death ends the duel with Satan that had been going on since the very beginning. We see it there in Genesis 3.15. Talking about the enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And how the seed of the serpent will strike his heel or crush his heel, but the seed of the woman will crush his head. As Blair read from John 11 about the raising of Lazarus, we see many times in the gospel accounts that Jesus encounters death. A dear pastor friend of mine named Kevin talks about this. He says, every time Jesus encounters death in the gospels, he doesn't like it. Jesus never says, well, this is a natural part of life. Death is just a part of living. No, every time he goes, this is wrong. And he does something about it. And to, to defeat death, Jesus has to deal with the cause of death, namely sin. This is the big word that we see here in Hebrews uh, 2.17, propitiation. Again, probably not in our normal lexicon, normal vocabulary, but real briefly, uh, this simply says that Jesus has satisfied God's just wrath against you for your sin. God's justice is satisfied. His righteous anger is removed. Since Jesus has soaked up all of God's wrath, there is none left to fall on you. If you trust in Jesus for your salvation, because he has absorbed every bit of the wrath of God, his just righteous wrath against sin, there is none left for you. Your sin has been paid for. God is not angry with you. He loves you. You are right with God based upon the sacrifice of Jesus. So what does that mean? This means that the Satan's greatest weapon, this fear of death, has been destroyed. This weapon has been, re has been rendered useless. Paul writes about this, 1 Corinthians 15. Death is swallowed up in victory. O oh, death, where is your victory? O oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And y'all, even if we still may die, and y'all, you, you will die unless Jesus returns first, but you will die, we die without the fear of death. We die knowing that before God, we are right. We have been made right. We are justified. We are loved. We are accepted. 
We die knowing that death is a defeated enemy. And y'all, the reality is death is a temporary reality. Death is not forever. Death does not have the last word. John Mark McMillan put it this way. He said, the man Jesus Christ put death in his grave. Jesus, as our brother, is able to be our high priest that we need to offer the sacrifice that we, that we can't offer, but to be our hero, to free us from sin and the fear of death. Whatever suffering we may now encounter, whatever temptation we now experience, we know that Jesus has walked that road before us. Our God, our priest, our brother, our hero, empathizes with us because he has experienced all that we experience, and he has overcome it all and has victory over all of it on our behalf. Let's pray.